Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Let's Grow.Work, hashtag LFG fam, where success is in the details. Today, we got a special guest with us, a friend of mine for a couple of years now. We got Greg James. Greg, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, I'm Greg. Um, I started a nonprofit probably uh, four years ago now. It's a Georgia law enforcement organization. Um, so, those of you who have been probably see all this pop up as far as events, uh, shows, awards, and so forth, fundraisers that we've done. So, Matt Justin kind of threw the car scene, which I was in originally. Um, started off in 2004, 2005, the movie scene in Port Atlanta and stuff like that. So uh, it's been a, a long journey getting where we are right now. So that's it in a nutshell. So we want to hammer down. And kind of yeah. No, I think it's a, it's a great story and what you do. So just explain for those listening what Georgia Law Enforcement Organization is and what it provides. Yeah, so we're a 501c3 nonprofit, um, and I choose 501c3 for a reason. There's a lot of national and state organizations that, um, quote-unquote, support law enforcement, but it ends up turning political. They end up in PACs and lobby committees and so forth, or politicians, and it tends to lose its focus of the true meaning of what they started. So as a 501c3, legally, we cannot endorse political candidates and so forth. kind of get into the, the, the politics of it. They kind of get messy. Um, and so the goal is to keep it 100% organic and make it to where every single member of the board and every member of the organization is 100% voluntary basis, including myself. So that way we can honestly stand back transparently and say 100% of what comes in goes directly back out to our, our programs. And today we brought 1.5 million in and 1.5 million has gone out. And so the way that we do that is the events that we host that you've been a part of, companies like yours that help out through sponsorships, vendors, and so forth. We use that money to cover the overhead that when we, we host a fundraiser for an individual college program, we can still say 100% of what comes in is directly back out. Um, there, there's just a lot of other crowdfunding sources that take a percentage off the top of donations. I just fundamentally, I just disagree with that because when someone donates their hard earned, whether it's $20 or $20,000, it's hard money if they want to go 100% for that cost. They don't want it to go into someone else's pocket. So, I want to be able to stand back and say 100% of what comes in to directly back out. And these situations, they are the, the ones that we focus on are what we call life changing events. As an officer gets shot on duty, an officer dies on line of duty, um, they're killed in a car wreck while they're on duty. Um, so anything that encompasses an illness or an injury or a death on duty, we, we focus on that. But also in the off duty aspect, if, um, for instance, the the story that you know, if an officer loses their entire family in a car accident, we support them in that capacity. Um, if they fought ill and they have terminal illness, cancer, um, transplants, and so forth, we step in the void because med medical compensation is just not 100%. And 100% with the officer gets paid now, it's not much at all. So once you cut that percentage down, it's hard to pay bills and pay um, all the overhead and so forth to keep your life going while you're going through these life changing events. So that's where we step in to support. And I think that's incredibly inspiring and just backing our people is something that doesn't happen enough. And I know there's a lot of divide in that kind of uh, sector, but I think it's a, it's a great story. And it's a great mission that you're on. How did you become about Georgia Leo? What got you into it? Um, it's actually a long story. It really starts um, in the, the car scene early on. So as soon as I, I got my license and so forth, like everybody else, you get your first car, you start modify and customize and so forth. Um, so before 05 time frame, that was the 
height of the Nubian Nationals back in the day in Port Atlanta, WRS Atlanta, and so forth. And so I, I got the car back then. And I went to, after graduating high school, I went to Weather Tech, got a degree in Weather Vehicle Technology. And that kind of pushed me into the perfect world. And so I worked for Dr. Don Pan, I was at several of his companies. Um, the first racing job I got was at Panos Racing School, which is the same building where we, we host the, the car show every that we're in. And so that that same job back in 2005 was Panos Racing School. And that's where I started as a general mechanic, I worked my way into the suspension chassis setups and then into testing the cars on the track after we do setups for different races and schools and so forth. So that kind of started that, that bug driving. Um, once that kind of came to a head, and another opportunity with Dr. Panos came up at Elon Motorsports, they got a contract through Champ Car, and we were tasked to build every single chassis for Champ Car for the 2006 season. Um, I went over there, worked in composites and uh, our certain build sector, worked there for two years, and around that time is the 08, 09 time frame when the economy was taking a Right. Um, and in racing, that's when it gets scary because racing is marketing material. You don't make money racing. You make money off of your sponsors and vendors and, and so forth. But when the economy takes it down, that's when they start to pull back and reduce their funds. Mm. Um, so that's when shops start to put their doors and start looking around. I was like, All right, I've done a lot of stuff that wasn't on the up and up, and I've lost every single chance I went up against law enforcement and so forth. And so it's kind of mentality of if you can't beat them, join them. Right. And so. I, I did a ride along with a friend of mine who the on unit and in doing that, I learned that because I had the normal perception everybody else does. There's, there's quotas, traffic Nazis, you just write people tickets for the same stuff that you do on your personal card all that. I was like, I, I can't be that guy. Like, I can't go out there and just hound the same guys I hang out with just because I'm in a different uniform. And so I, I rode with him and a couple other guys and I learned like, what you, you do have the discretion. You can go out there and those guys for the same thing it's more of educational on the side of the road versus writing to get them up financially and so forth and so that's that's kind of what i'll lead it on um so that's what got me into law enforcement i went in in 2008 and i started out in jail i got i just worked there for a year year and a half in jail i went to patrol and then kind of got my niche and drug addiction that was kind of my the, the roadside interview technique was, was kind of my specialty that was and beyond the traffic stop. So, for example, you can stop for a tag light, but then that conversation leads to XYZ. You can do all kinds of stuff that, that, that can stem from, but it's based on reading body language and the way that you talk to someone and reading that between the lines, the answers that they give you, watching the way they, they look, watching their eyes as they, they formulate the threat. Whether it's a truth or a lie in the brain, their eyes will do a different thing and tell you which, which road to go down. Um, and so, to me, the, the psychological part of it for that was extremely interesting. Um, and so I, I went down that path and did drug and criminal interdiction for several years. Um, I was assigned to that in SWAT team for the last six years while I was at the sheriff's office. Um, and so it was every day was just extreme adrenaline rush and running and gunning. When you're not doing that, you're on the side of the road working, working for your bigger dope pieces. It's not just your users going down the land to get their picture in the morning. It's stopping those guys on their way home with their, with their stash and then finding out where they got it from. Finding that guy, find out where he got from, just finding the, the top dog in that step back every single time, going you know, after that true, true dealer that's, that's dealing with all the kids here in, in the county. Um, so that's kind of how I got into law enforcement. Um, coming out of law enforcement, it was the 
2014, 20 timeframes, when people think about police shootings and riots and so forth in the last 10 years, first big primary case you think about is Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. That's when it really kind of took off. And it was Darren Wilson who ended up shooting Michael Brown. He was, the, he was a younger African-American kid who was a kid. He was, he was like six, seven, six, eight. He was a big dude. But he just robbed the gas station, met Officer Wilson in the middle of the street, then they had a conversation, and he tried to steal his gun and got a shot. Um, that's kind of when I, I realized there was a tipping point in the culture of law enforcement and in the public perception of law enforcement. Um, it was no longer the cool thing to do or the right thing to do to support law enforcement. And it showed that no matter how good you do your job, if there's one individual multiple states away that makes a mistake, it's a black guy and everyone. And so we have to deal with that fallout. So we lose the trust, even though we've individually done anything wrong. We lose the trust of the public because one person just thousands miles away. Um, so that was a tipping point in the sense that in that case, Darren Wilson, it was a good shoot. It later was found to be truly justified through forensics and crime scene analysis and so forth and, and through court. Um, the initial public trial, I guess, you could call it was he was deemed a murderer and so forth up front. So even though morally and ethically he made the right decision, he still got vilified for it. And that was something that was new to law enforcement. Before that, you could typically sit back and say, going into every single shift that you work, you could say, for the next 12 hours of my shift, as long as I morally and ethically make the right decisions, I'll be okay. It was no longer that situation. You could still make those same decisions and not be okay. That's a scary situation. Um, and so being paid what we got paid and going through what we got through, there's just not a lot of support there if that situation does pop off. And the public kind of turns it back on you because the mainstream machine gets spun up against you and so forth. So it's just this. So at that point, I was early 30s and I was looking around. I was like, right, at this point, I've achieved every milestone I wanted to achieve within law enforcement. Um, it's now become more of a stressor and a job that has something fun to do that is rewarding for actually helping people so forth. Because now at this point, you can give someone no warning, and now you're still getting a complaint because another officer over here gave a ticket the same offense. So now even trying to help people out, you end up getting complained on just for trying to be a nice guy. It's like, all right, this is just not for me anymore. I'm young enough. Let me step back and do something different. So this is where the nonprofit idea starts to build and kind of culminate pressures that create a diamond. These are the pressures coming in that kind of created that. Yep. So I started looking around and I knew in that moment, I was what you call it, a door picker. I just door picker on SWAT doing that every single day, doing criminal interdiction on the side of the road. That doesn't really translate to the private sector. So mm -hmm. as that guy in that moment, in my mind, I'm thinking, where do I fit in? Like, I don't have a unique skill set. It's a very advanced skill set, but where does that fit in the private sector? It's just not there. Unless I want to do private security for a bank or something like that. And it's just, it's not my speed. So I just couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, I started looking at the options and government contract with the military kind of came up first and foremost. Um, number one, the money is insane to, to do that. Um, but the experiences are also pretty, pretty great. So I started looking into it, um, filled out some paperwork, got contacted by a career and started my security clearance process. Um, Flew through that flying colors because my back's past 10 years was in law enforcement. So it was sweet, sweetly clean. Um, while I was in law enforcement, I didn't have a single write up, a single counseling, single sanction. I, I, had, I had nothing completely clean record. 
um, which is kind of unheard of in law enforcement. But um, it was squeaky clean. I was still in the profession as I applied. So I knew that the standards were still there. I was, I was still good there. So went through the entire application process. It takes about a year to get your security clearances after the year background, polygraphs, and so forth to actually get those to you. Um, so I got multiple clearances at, at different levels based on the work I was going to do. I got hired on by the Department of Defense and Department of State to go overseas to Middle East and do, um, I think I this, just to do some work for the government overseas. Um, when I were there, I realized, um, holy crap, this is not the same support system that we had in law enforcement. The law enforcement keep back up, you call for it, and it's there. Yeah. Over there, you don't have that. If you get into some some stuff, you're you're in it, you're on your own, you find your own way out, you find your own way home. Um, military is a little bit different. They have support, but contractors do not. That's what they basically do. Well, it's just us. We, we get up on our way back on our own somehow, so we make it happen. Um, so that was interesting to know that dy- dynamic and the guys I worked with. Um, but that's when I started the nonprofit when I was overseas. So in the idle times at night, things, adrenaline rushes, so forth, were kind of calming down. So I still had the attachment to law enforcement. I was like, I never want to go back into law enforcement because what's become. But I know that the men and women who are in there, I know their thought process, I know mentality wise why they do what they do. I also see the roadblock that they're up against as far as the, the hurdles that overcome in society. Um, and so that's really why I started it. Um, there is, there were a couple of high profile shootings here in Georgia while I was overseas where officers were, were, were killed. And that just kind of reaffirms, all right, we, we need some support. You see people going to funerals and stand outside wearing the flags and so forth, but that's great for the family in the moment. But after that, continued on, where does the help come from? So, um, that was just a driving factor as far as why I needed to create it, but specifically on the cause and not get too deep in the weeds and politics of it and working out deals with politicians and going that kind of dirty route. So, I just want to keep it grassroots so that again, we can say 100% what comes into it, right back out. So that's where it started. It was 7,000 miles away. Um, and I came back home in 2019 in the Middle East. And, and this one, I got hit the ground running with it and started, started big time with it. So that's it. And a large nutshell. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's more beats on that, but that's, that's kind of, that's a summary of, of how it started. Yeah, I think it's great. And I, I find it really interesting. And this is our first uh, recording of somebody that's doing a nonprofits, which is still, in my opinion, like running a business and then some yes. while you're still working a job. So I can imagine yes. it's, it's got its stresses. It's got its ups and downs. Now, Kelly, your partner, how long have y'all been together? When did y'all meet? Did, you know, was this already something that you. Yeah. So we met when I was, uh, I was still in law enforcement, still on SWAT. This was 2012 time frame. We met. Okay. Um, so, I mean, just normal, just relationship started dating first off and she lived in smart Island and, and coming here in Georgia. Um, so it was just a commute back and forth to see each other on the weekends and a couple of days around the week and so forth. Um, then once she moved in, I think things kind of, an interesting part to this was when she first, when we first started dating, she came over the first couple of times, she had this just fundamental rooted fear of guns. She had never been around them. She didn't know anything about it. But she's from smart Island. There's, a lot of shootings in, in Sparta, yeah. and you go outside and you hear and so forth. And so it just it, it scared the life out of her. Um, so that was one of the things that I came home in uniform, taking all my stuff out. And this was back in 2012 when we still wore just the tan dress shirt with the duty belt on your traditional cop, get up and not the over vest and so forth. Mm-hmm. Dress, but 
I take the belt off, lay on the bed, and I see her just staring at my gun. And her eyes are all like watery. It's like, good. Like, what's what's wrong? She started crying. I was dumbfounded. Like, I didn't know how to react. I didn't know what the issue was. So, yeah, you didn't have training. Well, yeah. So I had to I unload it, pull everything out, send the side on the other side of the room on the table, broke it down as many pieces as I could. We're talking like locks. So it's not that many, but I broke it down, just laid it out. I was like, none of this right here is dangerous. This is an object, just like a cocaine or your phone or whatever else. It's an object. You can't do anything. It depends on the person behind that object who operates it, but also internally, mentally, are they the type of person that could, could use the defense leaders to force the targets and else. So it, it took a while to get her past that, but we eventually went to the range. She learned how to shoot. She's actually, it's funny because women are actually a better shot than guys are because they, they listen. The guys <laughs> get up there. We, we want to, we want to manhandle it. We want to show everybody, show up. Ego comes in, but women, they don't, they don't, they're scared. Some of they want to listen. They want to learn how to do it right. We end up being a better shot. It's not like eight guys do. Um, so that's kind of where she was. She was a brilliant shot. So she's been, she's asleep right now in the other room, but she, uh, She's been around ever since we started dating in 2012. We haven't taken a break or anything like that. So going through SWAT, that was just a different mentality for her because we got call outs in the middle of the night when something to explain SWAT is typically like when you encounter an emergency in your life, you call 911. Well, when the troll gets there and they encounter something they can't handle, they're like, holy shit, we got to call 911. They call SWAT. Yeah. So that's when we, we get called in. So it's typically in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, that's my barricaded hostage, whatever else. That's when my phone would go off. We got next tells back then, that's how long it was, but next and so forth. And so it was stupid loud. I had all the, those messages forwarded to her phone as well. And so when that call came out, the entire room lit up, ringtones going off like crazy and all that. And she had certain things she got to do to help me get ready for it because I'm now at rush because somewhere in the county, they have barricaded out the gun or hostage, whatever else, time is yeah. of the essence. And so I'm trying to get up at two in the morning, just sleepy eyes, can't see you stumbling around, trying to get my boots on, like that. She would lay out my, my gear and all that while I'm getting dressed. She had certain things she had to do. And then I would shoot up out the door. And then that mad rush of excitement in the house where she was left, it was now just dead silence. She knew where I was headed to, but she didn't know what was going to happen. She didn't, she knew she wouldn't get updates for hours possibly. And she would have no idea what's going on. So that was something I didn't really think about in the moment because I'm in the moment doing this. I'm out there. I know what's going on. I, I know what's happening. I've got the updates. And she was back at home. I had no idea. Just sitting in silence, just not knowing if I was in the middle of it, if things were good, if we were okay, if someone got hurt. She had no idea. So that, that it took a while for me to wrap my head around. It's not just me anymore. And so going into law enforcement, doing these things, I just, I kind of put myself in positions to where I was always the first guy in. I was always taking the most risk and making sure I was that guy because I never wanted to be the, the team that if we went into a house and someone in front of me went down, I never wanted to think, well, if I would have gone first, could I have gone down and said this person? And it's always that mentality. You look up for the guys behind you, but you also look up for the guys in front of you. So I just, I always wanted to be the first guy on the door. It was just, what's my height being short? That kind of helped out. It's our guys going behind me. So as we flow in, you got guns on the same plane um, going in. So I just one person going in and then get shot in the back. So it's, it did help out, but it was just that the mindset and thought process changed a lot, bringing her into the mix. She's been here ever since. He went out overseas for three years. She was here with the dogs and she, she maintained the, the household while I was gone. She's still, still here when I got back. So, and she's yeah. really yeah. rock. 
Yeah, that's uh, an interesting perspective. And it gave me a lot of chills talking about the energy and then you just having to leave and then being there in the dead silence. Like a lot of people don't think about the other side and, and the, the spouse that's attached to all that um, and the, the unknowingness of you coming home or not. You know, yep. so I can definitely see that being a very heavy burden and, you know, probably a big turning point for both of y'all in the relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that, that showed a lot of, I guess, um, strength and thick skin in that moment. And then going overseas also, I mean, I'm 7,000 miles away, so we're on a completely different time schedule, a lot of difference. And she's at home asleep knowing that I'm out in the desert somewhere in the Middle East doing God knows what. And couldn't communicate with her because all, all the comms are there monitoring. So I can't call back and be like, hey, I'm going to this country or we're, we're doing this today. Like that. Just couldn't do it. So there, there's no way to get updates. She just for three years was pretty much in the dark and no clue what I was doing overseas. So if, yeah, if we were in a situation where I couldn't make that morning call check in, just to say hey, he's having a good day, stuff like that, she didn't know what was going on. There's no way for her to contact and find out. So, yeah, that's that's crazy for us to be in a, such a tech-driven society and to always have that instant gratification and to be able to talk and then just kind of thinking about again, you know, you in that situation. And not being able to reach out to your loved one, you know, it's it's got it's carry some weight for sure. Yep, that's it's a huge impact. It's not just individually on the one person that's doing it; it's everybody in their life that, that knows one loves them. So yeah, it's got a trickle effect with snowballs. Yeah, and so is she like a hundred percent in with uh, Georgia Leo with you as well, or is it just like, hey, I need your yeah. help? Uh, it's a little bit of both. So she's she's got her own full time job just like I do on the federal side here. Um, and so the nonprofit, I pretty much run it single-handedly on my own. Um, and it's just, it was kind of my baby. I kind of cultivated it from yeah. just a, a thought, but not the to what it is now. Um, and so when I need help, I kind of tap her on the shoulder and she steps in to do what's needed. But it's yeah. just one of those that it's, there's not a structure or a schedule for what needs to be done every single day. It's just every day is different. Um, for sure. And, and luckily yeah. I'm able to. To work from home, doing what I do full time, and able to do this on the side at the same time simultaneously, so it, it helps out a lot being able to do that. Yeah, yeah. No, she's so. she's great. I mean, every time we go to an event, sure. yours or somebody else, where y'all are there or whatever it may be, she's extremely hospitable. And it's funny just having this conversation. I thought about. It, I was like, I've never really taught y'all at the same time. Like it's always you're out in the park. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I'm awesome. yeah, I'm running around. Yeah, I know both y'all very well, but on different on different sectors, I guess to say. Um, yeah. Which, yeah. you know, we need to change that sometime soon. We all need to get some dinner or something. And she's yeah, always like, oh, we're going to go do X, Y, and Z. I'm like, I'm old. I'm tired. I got to go home. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're trying to kind of prevent that that mindset of, oh, we're too old. We need to stay in. So that's, we're still going out and doing stuff. But it, man, it takes so long to recover now. It's ridiculous. It, it does, man. It hurts all week. Yeah, it hits different for sure. And I just turned 40, so everybody's making fun of me. Like, oh, yeah, you're going to hurt now. I'm like, oh, you might be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah I mean, my whole, as far as hurting, my whole body's broken. I mean, back's all jacked up. Knees are blown out. I mean, it's just everything's going out. And I wake up more. It's Rice Krispies walking in the hallways and <laughs> popping and creaking. But yeah, it's just, that's, and that actually goes into another reason why I started the, the nonprofit. So if you think about the military when, when guys get hurt, injured, so forth in the military, they, they get their disability comp, they get their percentages assigned to them, they get the VA granted. The VA sucks. Um, when they do help, they help, but it's getting the help is difficult. So 
Um, but they do have that, that benefit there. They do have financial compensation for the injuries and so forth. But law enforcement, you just don't have that. So guys that blown out backs and knees and so forth, they just don't have that, that support coming through. So limits what they can do professionally. So the job itself, they gave 150%, got hurt. Now they can only get 50% because they are hurt. Yeah. They don't get compensated for that 50% later on. So they get put to the courthouse or um, work in the, the extra machine the magistrate course like that that ends up being their career because the job itself forced them into that situation now they're just kind of stuck so i never want to be that guy but we do have services in place that kind of help supplement that not um the long term for their entire life but when they encounter situations where they are in trouble we step in and help and i mean i personally know what it's like because in 2013 2014 time frame we got a high-speed pursuit that started for a northbound coming into Forsyth County from Alpharetta. Uh, came all the, all, all the way up 400, took a ride on 20, took Highway 20 all the way in and with that. And he was so reckless, we ended up hitting the guy at about 90 miles an hour. Um, vehicle it overturned three or four different times, landed on its, on its wheels, but it was on top of a concrete manual cover. And his wheels weren't touching, but he's still trying to go. So if you think about the mentality, he's running that far. He flips three or four times lands on all four tires and he's still trying to run. So he was, he was determined to get away. Um, this was back when Texas stuff got changed. This was back after Chase, everybody would just kind of brush the car and start breaking windows, trying to get him out. So forth. now it's slowed things down where we call him out. But this is back then before that, the tactics have changed. So I immediately run up, break out the driver's window, start dealing with the driver, trying to get him to get the keys out, get it parked, get off the gas. Cause he's sitting there spinning the wheels. Folks go on spark tree on the seat. Yeah. So it's down on the concrete. Um, but in the process of that, his seatbelt is in and the, the tactic to get someone their seatbelt out of the vehicle, you have to push their head towards the passenger side with one arm, reach the seatbelt, pull it back over and then grab them and pull them out, out of the car, you know, with the seatbelt. And so in the process of doing that, he comes up with a knife and ends up stacking me in the ribcage. So the problem was that that was the process of him fumbling with the knife, trying to open that, he cuts himself. So he cuts the web of his his thumb right right here and cuts that snow as he's driving through it goes through his skin and straight into me he had full on beats and so i was exposed now to the blood where he cut himself and now I've just got a show three inches of my ribcage so after the fact we're using the the ambulance to forth i didn't know i was stabbed at this point but after we get him out of the car he's pretty pretty banged up he got what he deserved but put him in the back in the, the ambulance and they're dealing with him and he asked the the medic, if they can get his backpack out of the trunk of the car, because it has all this medicine in there. And they're like, no, screw you, you're going to the hospital. They have medicine there. What do you need it for anyway? He's like, well, I have full one of eight. And I'm sitting there like, well, great. I, I have blood on my shirt and all that, thinking it's it's from him. Um, but while I'm standing there, I'm just kind of adjusting my, my duty belt, my vest, and it's, it's hot, sweaty, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And when I do that, I bring my hand up and it's covered in blood. And I was like, oh, shit, this, this isn't good. And the medic saw it at the same time. They pulled me in the back of the different ambulance. Stripping down and out on the saddle and my ribcage. And in the process, we see that his hands cut, see that's clearly sliced open from the knife. So we knew there was exposure there. So for 12 months after that, it can take up to 12 months for HIV to eat the system. Yeah. I didn't know if I had for a solid year. I had HIV for a solid year. So six months into it, I essentially basically chemo that they give you. They just don't know how to kill it. So they give you everything that kills any foreign body body so i took chemo for about six months really? hair fell out like, yeah the hair fell out like contributes to which which you see now 
Um, my eyes, I had jaundice really bad. So my eyes were just super yellow and worn. My fingernails turned like a dark orange, black color, and falling out. It was just a nightmare. So in that process, I'm still working full time as a cop while I'm going through the morning and, and night sickness of the chemo and so forth. Yeah. These other medical issues. Um, and so a year later, through the infectious disease doctor, the final test came back because I was clear that their synopsis of it was they think that when you cut himself, the HIV dies as soon as it makes contact with the ear. Okay. Well, it's thick enough that they can survive inside that drop of the blood. But it's just a, a thin smear. Then the, as long as every particle touches the ear and dies before it, you go in contact with it, then you're good. So that's what happened. It was just a light smear on the knife as it went into me. And so that's luckily what prevented me from getting HIV at that point. Um, but coming out of that, like, there's still long-term effects that, that come from the chemo and so forth. Yeah. And, None of that is, is covered. There's, there's, we don't get medical percentages for disability and so forth coming out of it. Like I've got slipped disc and blood out back and knees are bad and all that. We don't get percentages for that either. So once you leave law enforcement, it's just, hey, thanks for your service. Have a good day. And that's it. Whereas military wise, it's different. So I wanted to try to implement something to where even after the fact these guys are experiencing issues, we can step in and support. So that's what the nonprofit does now. Dude, that's like mind blowing. Like just all that. I had no idea about the chemotherapy. You know, I thought we were just both ball headed and sexy, but uh, uh, yeah, well, there's that too. That's <laughs> but no, I, it's a truly inspirational story. And just to confirm, obviously, I mean, I, I feel like it's obvious, but it's the only people that can qualify would be law enforcement, correct? Not fire. Yeah. So, so right now, the, the goal and focus, and, and because there is such a, a work loop on it, it's just focused on law enforcement for right now. Eventually, yeah. I would like kind of take this this model that we currently have up and to someone in the fire community that has an experience the capability to kind of run that side of it to hand it off to them and to do that because i feel like it needs to be somebody that's in that community that runs that sector and not be the police side knowing very little about the fire side trying to run there yes as well yeah it needs to be something so it's just once i get the law enforcement side the model of it it's never going to be perfected, but as close as I, I can get it to be on the good model to hand it to somebody, say, hey, here's your one-year, three-year, five-year, ten-year plan. This is how you can get it implemented and run with it. Once I can do that, then I'll love push it out to the fire EMS and so forth. Um, so that's really currently cool. it's still, still in the, the early stages of, of those thoughts, but they're, they're kind of in the think tank. They just haven't come to fruition just yet. Yes, I, I think that's great. Well, Greg, I really appreciate the time. Before we bounce, uh, go ahead and tell everybody where they can find oh. Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, so we're on Facebook. It's just Drew Law Enforcement. You'll see the blue check mark that it's us. Um, the logo is the blue circle. It's 501c3 in the middle of it. Um, the web page is georgialeo.org. georgialeo.org. Um, we've got several tier, you should call them memberships or sponsorships that, that we push through for people who want to donate. And again, every comes through on those donations goes right back into our officer programs and it doesn't cover our overhead attorney fees, CPAs, and so forth. That's stuff that we cover through our special events that we hold so that we can say 100% of what you, you send in goes right back out. That's awesome. That's awesome. And do you have a roadmap what 24 looks like, what you plan on doing? So 24, it's there are a couple different ideas I have. Um, my goal is to get more companies involved uh, past like you've seen with the car show at Atlanta. Um, I've got a great partnership with the driving club at Royal Atlanta, just because I've, I've known those guys forever. I've been the staff at Royal Atlanta 20 plus years. And so I'm able to work with them very well and be able to get uh, 
favors and so forth on that side of it. But I would like to know more companies come in and say, hey, man, we want to host a 5K or a car show or whatever else. Invite George Leo to come out, bring all the bring fire trucks and all that. Then the proceeds will go to the top series within the programs there. That's, that's what I'm trying to bring to it because, as you know, it's a ton of work planning these car shows and, yeah. and so forth. And just, just being one guy doing it, it's, it's a ton of work. Um, so being able to find businesses and so forth to sponsor and help promote these events all over the state would be great. Right now, we're in North Georgia, so obviously this is the prime spot for me to host them. But we are a full state organization, so even going all the way down to Savannah and so forth, eventually that would be key to get down there. It's just the logistics of doing it. Myself yeah. is also to find those partnerships to work out create those relationships is key. But that's the goal for 2024 to branch out that way. That's awesome, man. And obviously, any way that we can help or our listeners can help, just you know, definitely know that we're going to tap in. So we're excited. Yeah, man. So, Absolutely. Awesome. It. Awesome, man. Well, we're like two days away from Christmas. I appreciate you making this happen, man. Uh, I'm streaming the So it yeah, was. Any, any, yeah. Hopefully we didn't wake Kelly up, so that would that would be good if we didn't do that. Uh, she'll still be out till noon, probably. She's good. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time again. GeorgiaLeo.org. There. Awesome. We guys uh, appreciate it. Let's grow. Work hashtag LFG fam. Where success is in the details. We'll talk to you guys next time. See you, Greg. See you. Appreciate that.